0: Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 67 of the show. I'm Carlos Claza, joined by Ben Badler. As always, uh, this is our first postseason, post, I guess, post-postseason episode of the show. Ben, how do you feel with uh, baseball being done at the Major League level? It seems like every year the the offseason just shoots off as soon as the last out of the World Series is recorded, and it feels like that has definitely happened again this year. So how you doing? How you doing, Ben?
1: it never feels like an off season right like i guess the games stop in the major leagues but this is like the, the busy time of year for prospect handbook and every manager is changing their job now to uh, <laughs> uh to a new role there's there's just a lot going on so it's uh gm meetings yeah, winter meetings coming up
0: Yeah, GM meetings, winter meetings, prospect season, like you said, we are in full swing in prospects season at Baseball America. If if you're listening to this podcast now, we should have five National League top tens up. We started with the National League East. Uh, We're doing National League top tens throughout this month, so those will be updated if you guys want to check those out. Um, We're doing chats daily as we release those top tens. So just yesterday, I got to chat with some Braves fans about that top ten and that system overall, so that was cool. Uh, and then, like you said, the offseason in baseball, it's a ton of fun. It feels maybe counterintuitive for the offseason to be a lot of fun, but there's a lot of intrigue. There are a ton of transactions. There's a lot of movement, player and manager. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that today. Uh, but it feels like for for everyone in the offseason, it's a time where you can can always hope for next year. You can get really excited about the players that your team may or may not sign, like how the roster is going to look in a few months. Um, it's Angry just a very fun time. T-
1: Angry at the comments that your GM or your owner is making yeah. this uh, this last few days, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, all, all kinds of fun stuff is happening. So let's just get right into it, Ben. I mean, there's been a lot of managerial moves um, so far. We've had uh, the Cubs hiring Craig Council. Uh, they, they obviously had to fire David Ross to make that move. Craig Council feels like he was maybe the biggest managerial Candidate on the move was rumored to a few teams. The Mets fired Buck Showalter and hired Carlos Mendoza, who was a bench coach with the Yankees. Um, the Giants hired Bob Melvin uh, away from the Padres. The Guardians hired Steven Vogt. The Angels hired Ron Washington, uh, assistant with – not assistant, but a, a coach with the Braves. He's obviously managed before. But there's a ton of new manager moves. Um, do you have any thoughts on any of these specific moves on on what you'd wanted a manager – Uh, it's tough for me. Like, I don't really have any strong takes about managers. Like, it feels like everyone has more passionate takes about managers than I do. Maybe it's just because of the distance between myself and a big league dugout these days. I'm not really in the clubhouse. Uh, Like a beat reporter talking to these guys day in and day out. So it doesn't really matter to me. And I also find it very hard to objectively critique or, or evaluate managers. I just feel like there's so much that that we can't really know about the degree to which they move the needle or don't, but it does seem like Craig council has a reputation for getting the most out of his teams. I mean, these brewers teams have pretty consistently overperformed. So let's, let's just dive into the managerial talk, Ben, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I was surprised that he ended up with the Cubs. I think everybody, including the teams that were trying to hire Craig council, namely the brewers and the Mets were surprised by that move. Um, And certainly the amount of money was was five years, $40 million is uh, way above what um, typically has been a manager, managerial salary uh, in recent years. So I think that was surprising, but um, I don't know, I I think, especially now that Terry Francona has retired, uh, if he asked most people in the game like who is the best manager or you know name your top five managers in the game he would I think he would pretty consistently come up there from people from all different perspectives hmm. uh, and different avenues of the game whether it's old school new school like obviously longtime former player um, but is also uh, somebody who seems to a very modern approach to uh, managing a team and, uh, you know, I'm sure working with the front office there, like it's a, you know, very collaborative effort there in Milwaukee too. Um, so it's obviously not just him making these decisions, but it seems like he kind of has a lot of the attributes that you would want to mm. have in an ideal managerial candidate
0: yeah. I'm curious what those are for you, because like I said, I don't know that I have a great feel for like evaluating them, but at least in terms of like what you would want in your manager, what are those traits that, that you think are necessary um, or, or really important for a good manager? I mean, at this point, Craig Council is he's the highest paid manager in baseball. At this point, is a five year, $40 million deal. So. Uh, the, the people who are hiring managers seemingly have a better way to evaluate them than we do here. And the money says the council is the top manager in the game. Um, so I guess, what are your thoughts on the traits um, that you'd like to see if you were, let's say, running a team and, and hiring a manager and, and trying to find success?
1: Well, one would just be intelligence, both high, high IQ and then high EQ as well. Mm. I want somebody in that role who is extremely bright he's going to be able to understand and synthesize all of the all the data all the information that's going to be coming in at him uh, and who has a, a high level of emotional intelligence as well somebody who you know somebody who understands people is able to connect with people from all different walks of life um, and who just also has the you know the emotional intelligence or or the self-awareness to be in control of their emotions. Mm-hmm. I, you know the manager's job, at least when it counts like when you have a playoff team, involves making a lot of difficult decisions in high stress, emotionally charged situations. So uh, I would want somebody making those decisions who has the uh, emotional, Maturity and control to be able to avoid letting those uh, emotions interfere with uh, a rational uh, decision-making process.
0: Yeah, I like those traits. I feel like that's a, a really strong starting point. It really feels like the IQ component of it would would deal a lot with like just managing all the data that you're presumably getting from your front office and knowing, like, first of all, what it means and and how to apply it to your players and maybe a more beneficial way than. Uh, an analytics guy in the front office might be able to like you just using all the the relevant pieces of information you have to try and make your players better. And, and then that EQ piece, obviously, like you need to be able to, to manage the players throughout a long season. Obviously a lot of these guys are going to go through ups and downs, like keeping control of the clubhouse, making everyone is kind of rowing in the right direction seems valuable. Um, so that all makes sense to me as you were talking and, and, and talking about managing a contending team, I thought about whether or not you would prioritize different traits with a manager of a club that maybe isn't ready to contend versus a team that's in contention now. Do you think that you would maybe prioritize different traits or different types of people to manage uh, like a young up and coming club that didn't have a lot of expectations versus a a win now team that's clearly ready to compete on paper? Or do you think you just want or do you think your ideal candidate like can equally manage both those teams? Like, I,
1: I would say you want somebody like, look at what the Orioles have done under Brandon Hyde, right? Like he took over that team when they were just absolutely miserable. Um, and now they're winning, you know, a hundred plus games in the big leagues and they stuck with him. It, it would be tough for me to hire somebody who to, who is maybe has a more, development oriented focus and then say well you know hopefully yeah (laughs) yeah, exactly but at at the same time yeah so I I think hiring a manager who is good at player development maybe wouldn't be as high on the hierarchy of importance of of traits I would look for but it as some other things but Mm. it it is important like I don't love the title for example director of player development uh, or I guess if you're paid more you get called the vice president of player development which is basically the it's it's the modern title now for a farm director but what they're really in charge of is minor league player development but player development doesn't stop once you get to the major leagues the development of those players who are in the big leagues is crucial you have you have the rookies who are just breaking in uh, you have players who are, you know, young players who are just getting adjusted to the league. Who are uh, maybe not even necessarily rookies, but are young players who are still ostensibly on the upswing of their careers. You have older players who are in their thirties who need to make adjustments to compensate for their phys- physical abilities uh, atrophying or, or decaying. So, having a manager who is a great developer is an advantage Uh, at at the same time. I think a lot of that can also just fall upon your coaching staff, your hitting coach, your pitching coach, the rest of your coaches with oversight from your manager. I do think it takes on a a higher uh, or a bigger role in the hierarchy of what you're looking for in hiring a manager. If if you have a, you know, a true rebuilding team. Uh, But ideally, no matter where you are, the, the manager you're hiring is somebody who would be pretty skilled in the area of development as mm. well.
0: Yeah, no, that's super interesting. I'm curious if, if you, let's say you're like a maybe a mid-market or not an appealing team and you don't really have the cream of the crop options to pick from in the managerial pool. If you had to weigh the importance of like tactical decision-making in-game bullpen management um, versus the like skills of just navigating human relationships, like maybe the more soft skills in, in that regard, which would you lean towards if you couldn't get the best of both worlds with a manager who, who just does both at a high level? Do you think one is more important than another?
1: I, I don't know that I would pick one or the other. I, th- I think I would probably rule out somebody who I felt like didn't have both of those yeah. skills Uh, I think there's such a wide pool of people who have the potential to Mm. manage an MLB club. And maybe that pool needs to be broadened Mm. some in in terms of like, you know, maybe not two thirds or whatever it is of MLB managers need to have actually played the game at the big league level. Like, I, I think it's a little bit unusual um, and, and probably isn't the future of the game. Not that, you know, I, I think having played in the big leagues is is an advantage. Mm. Uh, but I I think there's a more open pool of candidates going forward that probably should get jobs. But I I wouldn't pick from one or the other. I, like I I think those would both be pretty important pillars of what I would look for in hiring a manager.
0: Yeah. Wait, i not answer the question, Ben. You just you just you just take both. But the the playing piece is interesting too. Do you think playing experience of, of any kind is valuable? Like you said, you, you don't necessarily think that big league playing experience is a must. Do, do you think it would be a no-go for you if you had a managerial candidate who, who essentially came up through maybe the front office or analytics or scouting or some other area of the game, wasn't a player, and also didn't play at the college level or the minor league level? Like, Would that be a non-starter for you?
1: I mean, it's it's... I mean, for in terms of MLB experience or in terms of any experience?
0: In terms experience? of, so I, I was basically trying to lower the bar a little bit. Let's say like this, this person played in high school, but beyond that, they didn't play. Like how much of a, How much of an issue do you think that might create for the players in the clubhouse, like respecting the manager or just the fact that like you want your manager to know what it is like to play at a higher level, even if it's not major league level, like some sort of college experience or or pro ball experience in the minors, like. How wide of a net, I guess, are you casting on your candidates here? What's the what's the minimum requisite baseball playing experience that you would want?
1: Well, I, I think it's pretty rare to find somebody right now who doesn't have uh, any playing experience, like yeah, even college. Just experience. with you
0: talking about, maybe we should be casting a wider net on our candidates. I, I thought about well, that.
1: because right now it's it's pretty heavily shifted toward people who played in the big leagues. Like for me playing in the big leagues, it's it's not a prerequisite. There are advantages to having played the game at the highest level, like Terry Francona, Bruce Bochy, Craig Council. Those are probably what consensus top five managers in the game. Hmm. Um, At least before Francona just retired, but they all played in the big leagues. I think having that firsthand experience of being an MLB player and having been in the shoes of the people that you're, being tasked with managing can be beneficial. At the same time, I I don't think that having the physical ability to perform at the highest level of the sport in the world is, I I don't think that's necessarily going to lead to the skills to to be a good manager. It does give you access to a different uh, perspective and, and set of experiences that people who didn't play the game Uh, in the big leagues that that they will not have but if if you're hiring a manager i think you're severely limiting the pool of the candidates who might be the best fit for the job if you're just ruling out people who never played in the big leagues as far as pro experience i mean we used to largely have gms who at least played professional baseball we used to have scouts who you know that that, you know, that job, uh, that employee pool uh, used to largely have either played in the big leagues or in the minors or at least played college baseball. And now it's a much more open pool of people who have jobs in front offices and scouting departments uh, up to the GM slash team president level. And I don't know, like I, I look at other sports, like Greg Popovich the the Spurs coach is probably you know I'm not as up to date on basketball as you are but
0: he's <laughs> I don't probably know that he, I would call myself up to date on basketball at this point. <laughs> well,
1: it's like he's he's one of the greatest coaches in the history of the NBA, right? Like I don't think he ever played professional basketball. Bill Belichick never played in the NFL. Like he played college football at mm wesleyan in connecticut but like you know a, a guy who never even played college you know high level college football went on to become the most mm-hmm. successful football coach of all time like I, I don't think do you think players on the patriots are like oh i don't respect him he didn't <laughs> yeah play in the nfl for and sure it, yeah.
0: well I, i'm do you think there are any parallels to draw about the skills um or the traits that make a successful football coach or NBA coach. Cause it does seem like those coaches have a lot more influence on the wins and losses of those sports. Like for mm-hmm. the NFL. I, I imagine you are able, like how good you are at drawing up systems in the NFL and like just the fact that you're calling plays um and running like establishing a defensive scheme or in the nba like you are developing an offensive system that's being played that can vary from team to team and you're also responsible for like developing what kind of defensive system like an mlb coach you're not exactly implementing an offense you you, you're kind of just running out your lineup and hoping that you have good players who can hit better than the team next to them. And like, it's not like you're running plays defensively. You're not even really calling pitches as an MLB manager. So what do you think the comparisons even are to other sports? If, if they're even necessary at all, it's, it seems like such a different job and it seems like MLB managers, like the, like an NFL head coach is more similar to an MLB GM in my mind. Cause those are the guys putting together the pieces of the team um, whereas an MLB manager just has such less ability to move the needle in my mind.
1: Yeah. And that's why, like, you know, in a sport where the head coach in football and probably basketball, well, I'm not even, I'm not certain about basketball, but certainly in football, right, has more impact on wins and losses compared to the manager of an MLB team. Like, why? as an industry in baseball, do we tend to limit ourselves to hiring managers and coaches who typically played in the big leagues or who played pro ball? Like it's extremely rare to find somebody who didn't play pro ball, like in modern history, (laughs) managing an MLB team. You know, there obviously is a more robust minor league system in baseball. So there is a a wider pool of people who played professional baseball uh, who can go on to become coaches and, and managers in baseball than there is in football. So um, I understand that difference. But if, if I see somebody, though, for, for example, like if, if I see somebody who never played professional baseball, somebody who, you know, maybe never even played Division one or, or college baseball entirely and they want to become a hitting coach or a manager, i potentially even more intrigued by that candidate. It's because it's not somebody whose playing career is over and they're looking for a job. It's somebody who is probably so passionate and so driven to be a coach or to be a manager, knowing the obstacles that they're going to face along the way, because they didn't play the game at a high level. And that's who those jobs generally go to. uh, And they just don't care because that's what's burning inside of them to be able to do that as a career.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. I've not really given a lot of thought to like the managerial pipeline. Uh, But it's interesting to think through because I, I really don't know that unless I had real worries that like you'd lose the clubhouse, if you didn't have a manager with playing experience, I don't know really what the downside would be. I wonder how, like how quickly or or how difficult it would be to sell a manager with no, absolutely no baseball playing experience to a big league clubhouse. Because obviously Bill Belichick, his, his reputation is established at this point for a new manager though, that wants to go down this path from a, a background that is certainly not the norm in baseball. How much of a challenge do you think that would be? Um, obviously, the players there's not much they can do about it. But how challenging well, do you think that would be? How much of a hurdle would?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're not going to hire somebody off the street who has no coaching experience, no managerial <laughs> experience at any level. But you just think they're like a pretty sharp guy or whatever, yeah. uh, and think they can manage your club. You would want them to have come up, you know, ideally through your through your own organization or. You know, maybe somebody, maybe another organization and you're just like, wow, this, this, you know, this person has a sterling reputation as a coach, as a developer, they managed in the minor leagues. They've been a bench coach in the big leagues. Um uh, Like, I, I think, um you know, with the Giants, right? Kai Correa, uh, not, you know, not, you know, played, played college baseball, I guess, did step in technically, right? As the. Manager after they fired Gabe Kapler with the Giants at the the very very end of the season with the with a few games to go, hmm. but I, I I don't see why he wouldn't be for example somebody who would be a, a future uh, you know permanent managerial candidate somewhere down the road. It, it seems like he clearly has the the respect of the players he's worked with everywhere that he's gone. So I, I think there are probably other people like that out there who just need an opportunity um, you know, just to get their foot in the door and and prove themselves. Cause like, you know, there probably are people who want to do it and have a lot of these have a lot of other skills, but maybe the players just don't like them at all. And that could be, you know, certainly a, a pretty significant uh issue.
0: How how important is the actual managerial experience at at some level important to you like at the minor league level or in winter ball or or just some sort of managerial experience would like would you be okay hiring a coach who was never really a manager but maybe specialized in in hitting and had come up um, as like more of an instructor and a player dev focused coach uh, who never really managed a team would that be something that gave you pause because um, for me I feel like entering this conversation one of the only things I put down it's like traits that I would want in my manager is just someone who actually has managerial experience. That way I would at least have a way to kind of go back through their track record and talk to some players who played under that manager, see how they operated just to get a feel for how they ran a team. Uh, But I feel like coaches obviously have a lot of the same skills and do a lot of the same things, So I'm not necessarily sure that, that having like an assistant coach or a pitching coach or or something like that would, would not lend itself to to giving you the experience that, that I would want for a managerial candidate at the big league level. What do you think you, about that?
1: Well, when you say managerial experience, do you mean hiring a, an MLB manager who has MLB managing experience, no, no, or no, somebody no, no, no. who has? So
0: just just someone. Obviously, like not all of them can. For instance, like Brian Snicker, obviously had a lot of managing experience in the minor leagues before he got mm-hmm. the big league job. Like just just being the head coach, aka manager of a team in the minor leagues, essentially, like. Like, would you want them to have some sort of manager experience before getting the big league job? Or do you think coaches, it's fine. You're, you're basically learning a lot of the same stuff.
1: I, I wouldn't consider it a a must. Like, I wouldn't consider it a prerequisite to have, but it's certainly helpful to have, to have yeah. managed a, a group of players. At the same time, clearly managing a minor league team in terms of strategy or the lineups you're putting out is not the same as managing a big league club i think even a lot of minor league managers you talk to them they'll tell you if often in a complaining tone they're like there's only so much that they can do in terms of uh, you know the lineups they put out and who can play on what day who's not allowed to play on what day that kind of thing where it's a little bit more robotic and they're a lot of their decisions are handed down from their bosses. Uh, But a lot of the you know, you can certainly especially if it's somebody who's managed a minor league club in your own organization, you certainly have a feel as a front office for what it's like working with that person as a manager, and you have a lot of uh, experience and and people you can turn to to ask about the, uh, you know, the the EQ side of it and in terms of the players and how Uh, you know, how how well they responded to the manager, how well they, you know, liked their time, which is not even necessarily everything. You can even have friction with a manager, they might still be uh, a good manager, even if there's yeah. you, some, you probably want your managers there.
0: to have some friction with the players who are maybe a bit on the diva side of things uh, You don't want players walking all over your manager
1: <laughs> Yeah, but you, you at least have more of an opportunity, more more of a sample size of information to uh, to make a judgment if you have somebody like, yeah. like Brian Snicker or Tori Lovello who's come up as a minor league manager yeah. uh, through through your organization
0: Yeah, I would really love to be a fly on the wall in some of these managerial hiring interviews and really find out like what these organizations are asking, like what are the experiences they really care about um, and just see. Like how important to you would philosophy, like being on the same page with the front office matter? It seems like that is where a lot of the friction that we hear about on the public side comes from, just like difference of philosophy, um, maybe get an old school manager who is not fully on board the, the analytics wave that maybe like the Rays would want to move forward with, like, is that something that you feel like would be worth working through differences if you had a a managerial candidate that otherwise checked a ton of boxes, or do you think being on the same page philosophically is, is like a a no doubt must have.
1: It would be, that would be extremely high up the totem Mm -hmm. pole for me as a, a non-negotiable. I mean, I think it's, you know, the intelligence, the emotional intelligence, I think work ethic and preparation. Mm. It's probably a that one's probably a no brainer, right? It's a 162 game season, yeah. Plus spring training, plus playoffs, plus all everything you need to do in the off season. So, like, uh, it's
0: it's kind of funny to think about how many old managers there are that are going through the the grind of this long of a season and and all the time commitments that you had to have and the travel. Like, oh yeah, obviously it's not that. something that I'm thinking about a lot. The, these guys are basically just sitting around watching baseball. Really, it's not like that physically demanding but it's a ton of time so ton of travel ton of time
1: away from From home like a lot of these guys you know a lot of them are former big leaguers or or they've coached a long time in the big leagues and it's like they could probably just (laughs) retire and like (laughs) have a good life But, but yeah i mean being prepared being prepared is a big one for me like the preparation that goes into the season and into each game, I think is critical to being able to make good decisions to put your team in the best position to win. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of that preparation is going to be collaborative with the coaching staff and with the front office. Uh, so I think it's critical for them to be organized and prepared, but you are working so much with the front office that. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, yeah. One of the main things I would want to have is, I would need to have a manager be on the same page with me about how runs are created, about how runs are prevented. Some of the basic X's and O's of baseball. Like if you're, if you're still operating from a place where you believe that things like RBIs or pitcher wins are central to a player's value.
0: How about saves
1: or yeah, or saves. (laughs) Like I, I just don't want you managing my big league club like if you think yep. the pl- if you think a player who's hitting uh you know 290 310 410 is more valuable than the batter who's hitting 260 360 460 because his batting average is, is 30 points higher even mm-hmm. though his obp and slug are, are 50 points lower you know you're you're just not going to be a good fit if you're if you're making lineup decisions or pitching changes based on individual batter pitcher matchup hmm. stats not not like what a guy is hitting or has hit against lefties, but what like a,
0: this individual player versus pitcher matchup, yep
1: yeah, over his career like that's just not going to be a good fit and and some of this stuff it's not gonna be a must have if you're hiring a manager for your minor league system because those are things that can be taught and and learned yep. but if we're talking about hiring a major league manager yeah,
0: who's making your lineup decisions and substitutions yeah, and pitcher, pitcher usage for your big league games right now and decide determining wins and losses yeah
1: i don't i don't want them learning that on the job <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that And it, that doesn't either also mean that i need the manager to agree with everything that i like that, there should be a place for pushback and and vibrant discussion, uh, but on the basic fundamentals, the first principles stuff, the ABCs, we we need to yeah. be <laughs> we need to be aligned there.
0: What what sort of a philosophy around bunting would you want your manager to have?
1: As much as possible, obviously oh, no. that is how the Yankees uh, way. <laughs> I, what a what a strange what a strange quote from. Al, Al Steinbrenner, like, <laughs>
2: well, let's, let's,
0: a... let's, let's, let's pause on the Yankees top. We'll, we'll get, we'll yeah. get to some Yankees talk in a second. I'm curious. I wanted to circle back to the managerial moves and just get your sense of like which hirings of the ones we mentioned you like, or maybe dislike, or maybe are skeptical of, or just opinions on. I'm assuming you like the Craig council hiring. Cause it seems like everyone in baseball does for the Cubs. Um, but if you have a different take on that, let me know and then we can move on to these next ones
1: yeah i mean track record uh checks a lot of boxes that i want to have in in a manager Uh, a lot of success a lot of success in one run games too Mm -hmm. Um, don't know how much to put on the manager for that but seems like he pretty consistently uh, pulls the right strings
0: Okay. All right. Well, with that moving on to the Giants hiring Bob Melvin, clearly he he doesn't do too hot in one run games, if the 2023 season with the Padres is any indication. But what are your thoughts on Melvin's hiring?
1: Uh, not surprising. Obviously, there's the connection there with Farhan going back to the A's, and uh, didn't seem like he and AJ probably were getting along too great. So. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, I mean, in the press conferences, they said everything was fine. Ben, you didn't—you didn't believe those words.
1: Yeah, no, they both—they're both being very straightforward and candid, and <laughs> and honest. Uh, yeah, I, I guess like part of me, when I hear that stuff, is like, why don't you guys just say, like, if I don't know, like, if that was me, I, I would just tell you, like, yeah, like we're not getting along. Like that's <laughs> fine, but at the same time, if you have a boss and you're <laughs> <laughs> Who's telling you, like, hey, you know, make nice, and your mm. job security may be uh, tenuous based on last year's results?
0: Well, uh, I get I, it. This is not a question I thought of when we were talking about traits you like in your managers, but that comment made me think of it. Like, media savvy—is that something that is at all a factor? Like, there are some managers who who definitely seem to just like get along with the media and. And the media likes interacting with them because they're fun and they tell anecdotes and they tell stories and they give enough to the media to where uh, they're kind of pacified and they just generally come across well with the media and all their interactions, both on camera and just through the daily um, beat writer interactions. then there are some managers that just have a reputation as maybe being a little bit more crotchety or being a little bit more withholding or, or stoic. Like, do you care at all? your manager interacts with the media outside of like obviously not embarrassing the organization like how, how much does media savvy matter because that is the one area where your fan base is is going to form a lot of their opinions on the manager like rightly or wrongly so how, how much is that actually a factor as i just thought of it
1: yeah no i have a, yeah, a few other main pillars that i would want to have in a manager and media skills is absolutely one of them i think as a manager you have to speak with the media pretty much every single day mm. from February through hopefully October yep. uh, and then more in the offseason, too. You, you are in some ways the face of the franchise just because of how often you yep. are publicly speaking more than the GM. Certainly more than the owner. Thankfully, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think
0: we need all the owners to stop (laughs) Um, talking because nothing that they say ever comes across well. uh,
1: And and more than more than the players, it's a a demanding part of the job. It's probably an annoying part of the job for them, and it can wear you down, uh, especially if you're in a city like Boston or New York or Philadelphia. All of those speaking opportunities are opportunities for you to say something stupid. So mm-hmm. having somebody who is comfortable speaking in that spotlight, it, well, it's not as much of a factor as the on-field stuff. It is important to have someone managing the team who you trust to conduct themselves well and represent the organization well yeah. on a daily basis in, in those situations. Um, and and I think too part like part of the media side of it that um, you know that, that people see is the it's the post game press conferences or maybe the pre game conference in in the manager's office. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a lot more mm-hmm. conversations that just happen casually with the the manager with members of the media um, where they're talking on background, which means you know just not for attribution. Or, you know, totally off the record, uh, meaning that they're fine that you as a reporter uh, know this, but you can't print it. Uh, So so those conversations can happen at the stadium or they can happen over the phone. Uh, So having a manager who's comfortable navigating those conversations in a way that is responsible and is advantageous for your organization is important the The reason that some managers are, I, I would say, very well liked in the media, is in large part because they are just great sources of information for members of the media. Same goes for executives. If if a manager is giving beat reporters or national writers a bunch of good dope, like those writers are just going to be less likely to ever criticize the manager. So, so having a manager who is, you know, who has those relationships
0: by the media, that's what you want. (laughs) (laughs) Manager that the media despises.
1: (laughs) Well, well, having those relationships is not actually a bad thing. You want the manager to have uh, good relationships with the press, but yeah, I mean, that's, there's some truth to that. Like as a GM or team president, you want to make sure it's being done in a way that's advantageous to the club that puts a team interest first, not the, the manager's interest first. That's where there can be a, uh, maybe a misalignment of incentives sometimes.
0: Yeah. And you'd mentioned uh, as you were getting started on, on the media savvy savvy point here, your, your pillars uh, that you would want in manager. Are there any other ones that you, you didn't get to mention yet that, that you feel like you want to bring up here? Cause you definitely have a lot more well thought out opinions on this than I do. So I think it's fascinating.
1: Well, I think just as a personality trait, eh, there's all different kinds of personalities that can be successful managers. But um, ideally, I think I would just want to have somebody who's open minded uh, and intellectually curious. So I I would want to have a manager who is hungry for information, who wants to be uh, a lifelong learner who's open to new ideas and actively seeking them out because the way that a manager ran a team in 2014 is not gonna be the same uh, as it's going to be in 2024. I, I want somebody yeah. who's gonna be collaborative with the front office. There can be that, that vibrant dialogue um, when people have different ideas or an analyst in the front office sees things differently than you and, and you mm-hmm. think they're off here because they're missing something that you see as a manager through a different lens, like that's a great conversation to have, but I I couldn't have a manager who's just going to dig his heels in and not be able to have those conversations and create that friction with the front office that you were talking about uh, or with other members of the coaching staff. Uh, They have to be open to ideas, no matter whether it comes from, you know, their, you know, their right-hand man, who's the bench coach or whether it comes from, uh, an intern. Um, and I, I think it might ultimately be more challenging to detect this, but I, I would also want to avoid hiring a manager who might have a reputation for for being open-minded and curious, but doesn't actually have those qualities or mm. who might, who might be at risk of losing that because I, I think it's easy. If you've been doing something for a certain amount of time, Mm -hmm. it's just easy to get set in your ways. It's easy to, you know, for somebody who may have been a cutting-edge thinker in their 20s or 30s, say, uh, to get stuck in their ways in their 40s or 50s, just to get complacent. So uh, I don't expect the manager to be, just to have the time, frankly, to stay up. To date, on the all the nuances of the bleeding edge of modern baseball research, but they need to be able to at least just to listen and incorporate uh, that information into their decisions.
0: Yeah, I'm curious how you would suss out which which managers just have that reputation and act, and don't actively like have that trait. Um, but it's an interesting point to think about people who maybe have held on to that reputation despite the fact that like how they're operating doesn't really stand up to it. I didn't really think about that at all.
1: Yeah. It's probably true, especially as you get older and maybe even more so if you've had success yeah. in that role before. Cause you can say, Hey, look, I've,
2: this I've been a manager
1: me. in the big leagues. I, yeah, I've been to the playoffs. Maybe I even have a ring. Maybe I have multiple rings. I know mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Okay. Like that's great. But there are, you know, obviously there are like, things, things change. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly things are, are going to be timeless too. Uh, But I don't want a manager who's just going to be, you know, whining about a catcher who's in a one knee down (laughs) stance because catchers didn't do that when, you know, probably when he played and when he caught back in 2004. So uh, like I brought up Terry Francona before, I I think he's a great, he's going to be in the hall of fame. Um, But I, I think it's a quality that he has, for example, um, and it's part of what m- has made him or i guess made him now that he's retired such a great manager even mm. into his uh well into his sixties
0: yeah, okay well, do you want to sum up then your traits? Are you done? you have more this is a
1: well we talked about i guess i mean the other obvious one would just be like the tactical x's and o's mm. strategy stuff like i i think that's that that's a big part of it. Too right, like it's, yeah. it's obviously not as much as an NFL head coach, um, yeah. but that's a big part of being a manager, in addition to all the other, uh, more like human y type stuff that we've uh talked about. Mm-hmm. So it's that that's one where, like, yeah, like if you're looking at like somebody who's been a minor league manager, kind of tough to tell. <laughs> Right. Like if yes. if you're considering a candidate who because has
0: prospects need to get their innings, the lineup is somewhat dictated to you. Like who's playing where is probably dictated to you. Like you, you are limited more in the decisions you can make there. So,
1: yeah. If if you're considering a candidate with MLB managing experience, you know, Buck Showalter, Gabe Kapler, Craig Council, Ron Washington. Yeah. Maybe I kind of Ron Washington, I guess, to an extent. It's been a yeah. while since he's managed, but yeah, at least, you know, those recent managers, you can get a sense from just going through their history yeah. as a manager and seeing their track record. Whereas if you're looking at someone who hasn't been in that seat before the that's where I think the interview process and design becomes much more important to be able to mm. uh, tease out that type of information. Um, I, I think you like, you'd probably want to run through different scenarios from from real games from simulations uh as well just ideally picking out picking out the scenarios that involve uh that or at least that typically create pain points or are prone, mm-hmm. most prone to bad decisions like i'd want to understand their the moves that they would make I'd want to understand their thought process behind each decision uh, and also just the type of information that they would want to have
0: to make those.
1: Yeah, to make those. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's obviously it's not going to be the same as a real game, um, but I would want to know like what factors are important to you, what, uh, you know, un- understand your thought process in these scenarios and and understand whether this is somebody who's mm. uh, whether, whether this is in fact somebody who is a, a deep thinker, about the the game and, and the X's and O's side of it
0: yeah what we need really is a, a behind the scenes documentary on what it's like to be a big league manager Ben because I feel like on this podcast and in general in baseball it is very easy to discount managers and what they do and the degree to which they can impact wins and losses but just as we're talking through it there there's a ton of of things that they need to be able to do well and information they need to be able to hold and I gotta say, like when we initially were gonna talk about managers, I was kind of like, ah, eh, like managers—they're kind of boring. Who really cares? But the, the conversation here behind, like, what you want your managers to know, the traits that you think are useful, how you would um, basically interview your managerial candidates—like, it's all really fascinating. And I just wish we had more of a a lens to see it um, from our seats here. Like, obviously, no team wants their decision making put out to the world. There's a lot of stuff that. That maybe you think is giving yourself a, an advantage on the field that you don't just want to hand out to some documentary group, but I, I think it would be really fascinating to see, and maybe it would be easier for for people like me to to put a little more respect on managers, because um, again, the, the biggest holder for me is it's so hard to quantify their value compared to players, uh, and I do think obviously like you could take the best manager in the world and have him run the A's, they're not going to be a great team, so. Like oh a hundred percent but yeah. the
1: key to being a great manager is to have great players
0: exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would that, that would actually be my number one yeah have uh, a good team yeah <laughs> quality have have a really really good team
0: I mean yeah if you if you have a great if you have a great team uh, a bad manager is going to have a pretty good season um and yeah
1: you could yeah you could give Craig counsel like you said the oakland A's he's not he's never going to win manager of the year even though he <laughs> might be the best manager in baseball right like no no manager of the year ever is coming from a team with a losing record occasionally like it might be a team that just missed the playoffs or something mm. like that like they, they might get votes but um that's how we award manager of the year yeah, it's interesting whoever... too
0: it's like almost like which manager makes the best decisions in the playoffs <laughs> often feels like that's the manager of the year
1: or yeah or basically just who which team surprised us
0: the most yeah. which year. team outperformed their preseason expectations or their like Pythag record? <laughs> which team did really well in run one run games or extra innings? Yeah,
1: I would say too. This would not be like a, a must have, but just being bilingual, I think that's oh, an yeah. advantage. Yeah,
0: that, that that's such a huge advantage.
1: It's an advantage. It's not a must have because uh, you're going to have uh, hopefully a. a you know, several people on your coaching staff who could also, you know, we're also bilingual, but, yeah. um, being able to communicate with somebody in their native language, I think is, uh, definitely an advantage, not necessarily like you have to do this, but mm. if you can, I think it gives you a leg up. And even just certainly as a minor league manager, like if you're hiring a lower level minor league manager, like if you're bilingual, whether, or whether it's for a manager a coaching opportunity, uh, an intern with a club, those, I know those resumes tend to get put into the, into the yes pile, at least for closer consideration.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you keep coming out with them, Ben, anymore. Lots of, lots of fun things to talk through here with the managers, which again surprised me, but here we are. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, those are, yeah, those are kind of the the main ones, the main traits that I would look for. I'm I'm just kind of curious of like, what the future of what the future of managers will look like in terms of Hmm. backgrounds, if if it's going to be the same in 2034 or 2044 as it looks like in 2024, which I I think is pretty similar to what (laughs) it's, it's been over the last 20, 30 years heavily reliant on former, former big leaguers, which again, obviously are, um, you know, a lot of good managers have, have come from that background, and it's you know, frankly, like it's, it's easier to teach a former player some of the basics or even the finer points of uh analytics. Um, especially the generation of players now who are you know, maybe like in their 30s, who who are who will soon mm-hmm. you know, who will be retired pretty soon, who've kind of come up through this stuff uh in the game already, than it is to. Teach somebody, you know, give somebody that experience that they have, that playing experience that they have of like having actually been in those shoes. So uh, certainly understand why, but I I do wonder whether we'll see more um, non-traditional or kind of out of the box type, yeah, um, people coming up uh, as as managers going
0: forward. Absolutely. All right, let's get your thoughts on the three managers we haven't exactly touched on, but the Guardian hired Stephen Vogt. Any thoughts on that one? Uh,
1: I don't know him uh, super well, but obviously he jumps out just for how how well liked he was hmm. as a player um, by other players, and then also how little experience he does have. Um, so really relying on kind of the Guardian's judgment, there yeah. as to whether he is going to be uh, a good manager it's you know I, again like you said I, i'd love to just like have you know have their entire interview process on film <laughs> and just like go over yeah. it so get out have access to seems pretty thorough
0: i mean i'm sure every team's is pretty thorough when you're hiring for a manager but just hearing some some of the things that they value it's a lot of a lot of it Sounds like what you've been saying throughout this podcast in terms of valuing a growth mindset, valuing open mindedness. Uh, Obviously, I would expect the manager of the Guardians to be on board with a lot of the analytical things they're doing over there. So um, I I wouldn't be too surprised if it was not far off from what you've been talking about on this podcast. But um, all right, let's move to. Uh, Ron Washington, what do you think about this hire? Obviously a little bit different. All all these are kind of different, but Ron Washington obviously is well known for the coaching he's done with the Braves, obviously has his former managerial track record. Um, Thoughts on that one for the Angels?
1: Yeah, are the Angels, like I'm trying to even think, are they in like a rebuild? Thing? Like what are if they a lot even, of it will depend what position on, is this right now?
0: It, depend, it It probably could change depending on whether or not they sign Otani, right? Like if you sign Shohei Otani, you really can't be in a rebuild, I would imagine. Imagine a large part of your sales pitch is how you won't be in a rebuild. But if, if he moves on somewhere else, maybe you have to start considering that, that you just weren't able to build a contender around Trout. And or Otani, and then you you really need to kind of replenish the farm system and infuse some young talent because, man, it's been a struggle.
1: I mean, it it seems like his reputation as a coach, as a developer, is quite high. Is that yes. that seems pretty fair yeah. to say? So if I'm certainly like an Angels infielder right now, yeah. I'm probably pretty. I mean, Zach Seitz. Snyder and
0: Nolan Sanwell have to be pumped about this one.
1: Uh, yeah, I would think so, just given his reputation for getting the most out of his infielders. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know the he's not the hitting coach for the Braves. It's Kevin Seitzer, and um, uh, the the Braves certainly had a very talented group of players, but they also took a pretty big step forward. Yep. Um, it seems like everybody did it just in terms of cutting down their swing and miss while retaining their power and their impact so um he also hasn't managed in a long time so uh but he's obviously been a pretty key um key member uh of that braves coaching staff too. so uh i just i don't i don't know enough but certainly on the development side he seems to uh check that box for sure
0: okay All right, last one we have here, and we can pivot into our Yankees conversation, but the Mets fired Buck Showalter. They hired Carlos Mendoza, who, again, was bench coach for the Yankees. Um, Seems like a lot of people are really excited about Mendoza. He's been talked about pretty highly. Sounds like he's been a a managerial candidate for some time. Um, Again, I don't really have many thoughts on these guys specifically, but do you have any? And then I guess we can pivot into – yankees gm brian cashman a lot of his comments at at the gm meetings
1: yeah i think a lot of front offices have looked at mendoza as an up-and-coming managerial candidate for a while so um experience uh, a lot of experience on the minor league side developing players experience on the major league side um again like i don't know him extremely well but uh so you know for us to sit here and like Judge these guys is pretty challenging, I would say, but in terms of like a lot of the qualities that I've rattled off, um, at least from where I sit, he seems to hit on a lot of those boxes that you wouldn't want to have in a manager.
0: Yeah. All right. So those are a lot of the managerial moves. Now, now let's move on to general manager or president of baseball operations or whatever title um, these guys have these days. Uh, oh, you did mention, I wanted to ask you about the farm director comment since I brought up the, the titles of the GM. I much prefer general manager. I wish we did not have this run of president of baseball operations. It just sounds too corporate. I hate it. Is that is, is that a similar reason as why you prefer farm director?
1: Well, I just think if you call somebody the director of player development like it implies they're in charge of player development for the entire organization when really they're like the director of minor league player development they're not yeah they don't have a you know they'll be in communication with we're not actually in charge of developing the big league players whereas the gm team president chief baseball officer stuff it's like (laughs) title inflation so we can uh pay you more money and or prevent you from leaving to take like a GM job somewhere else. If you're already are a GM, even though you're effectively the assistant GM, uh, yeah. but you're, you have higher compensation.
0: Yeah. Well, mine is, is GM. simply GM sounds cooler. Farm director sounds cooler. So let's, let's stay with the cool titles. It is a lot. It is a lot snappier to say. Yes. It's much more of a baseball term, you know, like, you can have presidents in whatever industry you have like general manager is more feels more I don't know I associate it with baseball it's probably it's probably very common in all all other uh fields as well but either way let's move on uh, Brian Cashman really letting letting it out at GM meetings uh feels like this was the spiciest interview that we got from the general manager meetings um a lot of talk about how A lot of pushback uh, against the Yankees being like overly analytically driven. Um, Just a lot of fiery comments from Brian Cashman. I don't know if there are any specific ones that you wanted to hit on, but I'm curious what you thought of it and what you think of like the Yankees and their expectations year to year, the spot they're in, the fact that Brian Cashman has seemingly been running the Yankees my entire life. Um, and and whether or not you feel like he's he's on a hot seat at all, because it, it feels kind of crazy that Brian Cashman is this, this riled up and fired up when they're one of five teams that have won 500 games since 2018, and they haven't had a losing season in forever. But uh yeah, I guess the Yankees fans, I mean, they've been sold having different expectations. They certainly do have different expectations. Well, what are your thoughts on... Just all of the Brian Cashman comments and the Yankees offseason and just all of this. Take take any part of it you want to go to, Ben.
1: Yeah, six straight seasons, getting to the playoffs. 2022, they won 99 games, won the division. And then this year, very uh, not good season for the Yankees. A lot of things went wrong. What What kind of struck me about his comments yesterday is it, it didn't, it seems like his comments were like he was snapping at the media and the intended audience for what he was saying were the people in his own organization to be like, just to publicly show that, like, hey, I, I have your back, guys. Like, I'm proud of what we're done, I'm proud of the work that we're putting in. in and yeah. it seems like every. Aspect and he, he did it by kind of like going after the media, which yeah. maybe makes sense in some, in, in certain capacities. Like, you know, people like when politicians on their side go after the media, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you're a Yankees fan watching that, uh, and certainly when House, you know, Steinbrenner's comments too. The your reaction is probably be more like, no, like, don't blame the media. Like, what? Like, how are you going to solve the issues that we're having? Like, we don't want to just hear that everything is rosy and that uh, all of these narratives are being uh, spun against us. Like, we won eighty two games last year, or eighty four games, or whatever it was last year. Uh, we need to know what what changes we're going to make? How are we going to correct this Mm -hmm. and not just tell us, oh, everything except for what, like, our hitting coach's status quo? Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting. I guess it depends on, like, it definitely – how you take these comments certainly depends on your relationship to the Yankees, and Yankees fans probably take it significantly different than – just casual baseball fans who are, who are fans of another team, or if you're in the media specifically, if you, if maybe you're one of those media members who who wrote about the reasons the Yankees didn't succeed, you obviously are going to take it a little bit differently, but I didn't think there was anything really problematic with, with everything he said. I thought it was all pretty logical. I think it is probably more accurate that the Yankees weren't as good as they have been in previous years, more because of just injuries um, than any sort of like analytical narrative or bunting narrative that, that people want to put out there. Um, I also well, the, think the Bunting
1: on, like, narrative was put out there by them.
0: Yeah, like <laughs> the Bunting, the Bunting thing is just like a, this some ridiculous story. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know why we're talking about Bunting at this level, but it, it almost is like, do you buy into the Yankees exceptionalism or do you not? And if you do, then 2023 was this horrible year. But if you don't, it's like. If, if the low point of your team since 1992 is an 82-80 winning season, that's pretty good. Like, the fact that the Yankees are in the toughest division in baseball and took a step backward, yeah, that sucks, but I think you also probably need to have some perspective of what actually a bad season looks like. Like, take a look at the Cardinals. That's a bad season. I don't have much sympathy for... Yankees fans who want to like get rid of the people who have put together this continuous juggernaut of a team because you went 82 an 80 and you didn't make the playoffs. Like mo- that's normal for most teams to have years where you don't make the playoffs. It's normal for most teams to have a losing season. It's not normal for the Yankees. Um, I don't know. I-, I feel like they do a lot of things well there. Obviously. I, I think if you want to have a criticism, it- it's on probably more with ownership. Like, in terms of the decisions they've made, I'm curious if you think that they've made some really poor ones, but they certainly haven't spent like the Yankees previously spent, whether or not they need to or should, I guess, are questions you could have. But it is kind of crazy to me, and everyone says it. Like, New York is a different market. The expectations there are different. It's certainly been the case with just the reaction to this season because, I mean, if I was a Yankees fan, the one of the last things I would be pushing for is getting rid of Brian Cashman. But again, I well, I've become the GM apologist of this podcast. So,
1: well, I'm empathetic to Cashman getting like frustrated with how much criticism he's gotten and that, you know, maybe this, the entire organization or baseball operations department yeah. there has gotten given the string of success that they've had. The other hands you know if, um, you know you're a yankees fan and you're being a forward-looking yankees fan you're mm-hmm. saying okay like yeah that's great the success that we have had uh we probably got lucky in in a certain sense to even just win that what was it, the the 82 wins that we had this year when we actually got outscored mm-hmm. this year um and yep. then you look at the lineup right now Yeah. Like you have Volpe, you have Glaber Torres. That looks good. Obviously judge, um, you know, you you feel good about Jason Dominguez coming up uh, probably feel pretty good about Spencer Jones and and some other young players that you have, um, you know, still in, in the farm system, but uh, like, just look around the rest of that lineup. It's, not the very few league average hitters in that lineup. I mean, including Volpe, but he's, you know, gold glove shortstop too, you know, very good rookie year for him. I think he's going to take a step forward next year offensively yeah. too, but then it's, you know, guys like Rizzo, you know, what, what do you do with Stanton? Um, just there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of spots in that lineup that don't inspire, a lot of confidence, uh, the pitching staff, like, sure. You obviously feel great about Garrett Cole, but then, you know, you spend all this money on Carlos Rodon, uh, for not a lot of return and not a lot of else in that rotation that makes you feel super optimistic. So, I mean, as a Yankee fan, yeah. Like I'm happy about, uh, you know you can say you're pleased with getting to the playoffs consistently over over the last five six years uh, up until 2023 but hey like going forward are, are we just going to be status quo or are we just going to continue to run this same team out? <laughs> like what what changes are we going to make and when you hear your owner uh in particular and saying like oh no like we're all good like no, no, no. <laughs> like that's it's not a it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence for you to hear that yeah. as a fan.
0: well, I don't know. I don't really have much sympathy for Yankees fans who are who are bummed about this season because like every year they make an attempt to compete like they're <laughs> I don't know what processes do you think need to change for the Yankees? Clearly, they have holes in their lineup clearly some some signings haven't gone uh, the way you wanted them, but the Garrett Cole signing certainly has like they signed Aaron judge, like they're two franchise pieces, MVP candidates, Cy young candidates, like fronting both your lineup and your pitching staff. You have some good young prospects coming up. You're going to be competitive for all the top of the market free agents this off season, presumably. I mean, I just, I don't know. I can't, I can't be bothered to pull out my violin and feel bad for Yankees at this point. I would say like every team has issues they need to solve and I wouldn't put the Yankees as an organization that has clear process issues or I don't have confidence in how they can uh, either acquire um, young players or or make their team better immediately with free agents or, or with trades like they just wouldn't be close to one of the teams that I was worried about in that capacity so I just think that like clearly the expectations for the Yankees are higher than average and I think they're like unrealistically high at this point. Um, maybe you could say that you wish they drafted at the back of the first round, like the Dodgers have in the past. But I, again, I think that's like holding teams to too high of a standard. Like you can't be the best at everything all the time. Um, but, but maybe that's just the expectation for Yankees fans and in the Yankees circle. But I I just feel like that's unrealistic and I don't really think there are too many, like I feel like they're a well-run organization overall. Um, so I don't know. That's where I'm at with it.
1: Uh yeah, I don't I don't think the Yankees fans are asking you to feel sympathy for them. I, I think part of it too is they don't the care what uh, I, think. I, I think part of it too is the ownership saying, you know, during the season, like, hey, if we don't make the playoffs, there we're gonna have some hard conversations around here and then uh come the offseason, and then the off season comes and it's like, well, no, like we're We're actually pretty good. uh, (laughs) This just
0: reinforces the fact that statements that owners or GMs are putting out are—you really don't need to read them as if they are truth. I mean, we saw, (laughs) we saw the comments that AJ Preller had about Bob Melvin, the fact that he's coming back. We saw—I think I don't remember who exactly it was. There's another. Another comment made about some manager who's also Tom Ricketts
1: was saying about David Ross, he's our guy. Yeah, exactly. So like this a month this, ago. this
0: just reinforces the fact that like these statements are not put out to tell you exactly what's happening. They're they're put out for PR reasons and to pacify fans uh during periods of of tension. Like you you can't you can't read those as if they're being 100% honest with you because they're clearly not. So we are, we're just reading too much into these comments and statements and these ridiculous, like, ownership, these ownership comments. Like, don't stop, stop listening to them.
1: <laughs> I, I do think there's a lot of things that the Yankees have done well in scouting. And, uh, well, if you, if, if you want to call it scouting and player development, maybe it's more <laughs> scouting. It kind of depends on your lens. Yeah. But, like, you know, to, to see Dominguez coming up mm. now... I, kind of it sucks that he got hurt, but um, he, you know, like like I think we've talked about, oh, what are your expectations for Jason Dominguez when he got called up? And it was like, I, I don't know in a month, but like what's going to happen. But um, yeah, he was certainly better than perform. what
0: I was expecting for him in a month. Yeah. yes,
1: yeah, So at such a young age, um, I, I, you know, he's been impressive, like Oswald Peraza, like, and then you go on down the list of like their international signings, like Roderick Arias made his stateside debut this year, one of the best prospects in the Florida Complex League. He's already in our top 100. Um, they have this just, it seems like every year they're pumping out, like, oh, who's this 100 mile an hour arm that the Yankees have signed for 10K? out of the Dominican Republic that we're getting texts on from pro scouts. It's like, Oh yeah, that's, uh, all right. Just another one for them to add to their, you know, uh, stash of, uh, hard throwing guys, uh, that they're signing out of Latin America every year. And, uh, you know, who weren't necessarily throwing that hard as amateurs, but, uh, just really good scouting to bring those guys into the organization. So. Um, you know, like Chase Hampton had a good year, Pereira, good minor league season, obviously hit a, uh, a roadblock when he got to the big leagues, Drew Thorpe, uh, probably one of the best seasons, just performance wise for any pitching prospect in the minor league. So, um, there, there's definitely things to like there, uh, on the farm, maybe not that like elite top, you know, 20 prospect overall in baseball but they have like a probably about a half dozen or so guys who are uh top 100 or like top 100 type uh candidates in in baseball
0: yeah no i I think they do a lot of things really well again they win uh with the best of the teams in in baseball in terms of regular season success which again i feel like is the best best way to tell whether or not you're a good team not not playoff success i mean You'd rather be a Yankees fan over the last six years than a D-backs fan overall, I would imagine, just given what they've done. Um, any other comments on Yankees? I don't really have any other takes on them. We can move on to some free agency talk if you want, Ben.
1: Yeah, Who uh, are there any good free agents this year?
0: Well, there's at least one um, beyond that. Yeah. I guess it's uh, there's some more room for debate. But obviously, uh, Shohei Otani is going to be the big, big crown jewel on the free agent market. I'm really excited to see what he's going to sign for. I'm really excited to see. I mean, just where where he signs, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. He's gonna shake up big league. I just don't think he's coming back to the Angels. Maybe he'll will resign with the Angels, but him moving to another team is going to, it's going to impact the game at a very high level. Um, let's. It seems like the free agent class this year is pretty weak, particularly if you need hitting. Uh, I think there's some interesting arms that, that I'm excited about, but man, I really don't like any of the best after Otani. What are your thoughts on this year's free agent class? Um, uninspiring, I would say after the, after Otani, who might be one of the best free agents we've seen, I don't know who, who's the last like free agent you would compare to Otani. Like he might be, you might not be able to compare him to anyone. Just given the two way factor, given, given his marketing appeal, um, so yeah he might be like the biggest free agent that, that i've experienced
1: yeah maybe juan soto after that but um
0: Even, yeah i don't know
1: yeah well that's i mean just as free agent or now like just as a player there's nobody mm-hmm. who's come along like him
0: mm-hmm. okay so let's let's yeah i don't i don't think these... he's going
1: back to the angels though
0: Let's walk through some of these top free agents um, and, and I'm going to go down MLB trade rumors, top 50 free agent list. I think MLB trade rumors is, is an awesome site that I always have open in the off season. Um, so we'll go down there. Let's talk through some of the players I would like to do over under on like what you think they're going to get money wise. We don't have to do that, but I think that could be a fun experiment to do on the podcast if nothing other than to give ourselves a game and our listeners a game to play along with, um, but they have Shohei Ohtani at 12 years, $528 million. All of their writers predict Dodgers. It does seem like the Dodgers are the favorite to land Ohtani, just given some of the moves they've made over the past few years. West Coast team, powerhouse, ready to win now, obviously. Do you feel like the Dodgers are more likely than the field to sign him? And would you expect him to sign for more than $528 million? I, I might take the over on that one, even though that seems crazy to say.
1: Do I think he was more? You said more likely the uh, Dodgers than the Angels. Do you think?
0: Do you think the Dodgers are more likely than the field? Like, would you would you be more confident saying he's signing with the Dodgers or just take the field?
2: I mean, like, you, would to you say the field, about,
0: Yeah, you'd have to feel pretty strongly yeah. about the Dodgers to so not just take the field. I guess. Do you think that they're the favorite, or do you think it's more wide open than people seem to think?
1: They're probably the favorite. Just any team could use him like there's not like oh well we already have a you know some other position like shortstop or third base or something or catcher where all right well you know there's only so many places you can play a guy like any team is going <laughs> to have room for him it's just a matter of how much money can you spend which probably wipes out a whole bunch of clubs uh mm-hmm. to start but yeah the Dodgers seem like a great fit for him i would think they would probably be the the favorites here and the money just depends on like maybe how many years he yeah or, or how much how much of a priority total uh total money is compared to you know the aav the Averager contract value. yep yeah
0: yeah it definitely seems like from the team side they've tried to prioritize that figure just given the luxury tax and how it's implemented okay Let's move on to our next player. Uh, Number two on this list is Cody Bellinger. Uh, The MLB trade rumors estimate for his contract is 12 years, $264 million, which seems crazy to me. Like Cody Bellinger to me is a bit terrifying. Um, I'm probably more on the, on the pessimistic side of the Cody Bellinger evaluation. He obviously had a really strong year in 2023 with the Cubs, got back to more of his old self. Um, in terms of OPS Plus, it was his best year since 2019 when he won the MVP. Obviously, had a few bad years, sandwiched in between that. Where are you at with Cody Bellinger moving forward? He's obviously in his late 20s now, probably close to the peak of his career, entering his age 28 season. Um, at his best, he's, he's been one of the best players in baseball, but he, he's also been one of the worst players in baseball just in the last few years. So, Are you, are you more towards the high end of what Bellinger can produce moving forward, uh, the low end or somewhere in the middle?
1: Yeah, that's uh what did trade rumors say? They said two two hundred million for him.
0: They said they said twelve years, two hundred and sixty-four million. Oh yeah, that's uh
1: that seems steep, but I mean he does have the advantage of being a position player in this market where Mm -hmm. there's not a ton of other elite position players but for a guy and and he is younger than a lot of these other players we'll talk about he's just turned 28 excuse me 28 last season but um for a guy who really wasn't very good in 2022 or 2021 uh guaranteeing a guy that much money would uh would scare me
0: yeah, I believe if I'm looking at this correctly, that, that would make him give him the ninth largest free agent contract ever. Um, other contracts that would be higher are Aaron Judge signed for $360 million uh, last offseason. Um, Manny Machado signing for $350 million, Lindor signing for $341 million. Tatis signing for $340 million, Corey Seager signing for $325 million. Uh, wait, let me make sure these are all free agent signings. Some of these are extensions. Uh, okay, here. So, yeah, 264, that would be... Yeah, that would make him the eighth largest free agent deal of all time behind Judge, Harper, Seeger, Cole, Machado, Turner, and Xander Bogarts. And it's kind of funny to see Albert Pujols, his deal from... He signed when he was in his age 32 season still is a top 10 agent contract and all of baseball just kind of insane to think about that one still holding up so far down the line but yeah i would not want to give cody Bellinger that much money the swing and the maintenance of the swing just scares me too much i understand the age being a big factor it's going to look good on a lot of models um but i would just be too i would not be as convicted as I, i think you'd need to be in handing out that much money for for someone with his offensive variance
1: yeah i'd lop off about uh hundred million dollars in maybe
0: half <laughs> the years for well it sounds like that. you would not be signing signing him ben probably true <laughs> okay number three they have yoshinobu yamamoto uh the number one japanese uh pitching or prospect overall in this year's class they have him projected at nine years 225 million dollars and he might be one of the most fascinating just given what he's done in japan uh the fact that he's also fairly young like comparing him to some of the ace-like players in this year's free agent class, like guys like Blake Snell, guys like Aaron Nola. Um, I mean, I think I would prefer uh, Yamamoto as well, but I'm curious if you think that seems too rich. A, a big factor in this one is definitely the age, um, but there are some question marks. He's coming over from, from Japan. He's a little smaller physically, but man, he looks dominant um, based on everything I've seen.
1: Yeah, I would take him over any other pitcher in this free agent class, um, mid is to upper 90s. For you? Uh, you know, like Blake Snell is obviously a really good pitcher, but the, the age factor on mm-hmm. Yamamoto's side, the combination of stuff and success that he's had in Japan and how that stuff should translate against big-league hitters is... Mm. Yeah, I I, I I do think I'll call probably somewhere around that two hundred million dollar mark from somebody. Um, I mean, it's yeah mid to upper nineties fastball. Uh, it's a low nineties splitter um, that that really dies. He, he's got a slider too. Um, this is a front end starter to me, and, and you're getting him still during the prime of his career as opposed to some of these other pitchers who are probably more on the tail ends and could fall off pretty, pretty hard potentially.
0: Yeah. So just looking at some of the biggest free agent pitching deals in the past, um, we've got a handful over $200 million. Garrett Cole obviously is the biggest one he signed uh, entering his age 29 season, uh, 324 million, nine years Steven Strasburg signed a 245 million dollar contract for seven years, entering his age 31 season. David Price signed seven years, 217, entering his age 30. Max Scherzer signed 210 million for seven years, entering age 30. And then our final 200 plus million dollar free agent pitching contract was Zach Greinke uh, when he was 32 or entering his age 32 season, six years, 206.5 million. So that would put him in a pretty elite group. It's interesting, too, um, back in 2014, Masahiro Tanaka entering his age 25 season, he signed for $155 million for seven years. How would you compare and contrast these two pitchers, Tanaka and Yamamoto, at this point, since that is kind of the one you could point to? Um, that's a similar age that the contract would be starting. Uh, everyone seems to think that Yamamoto is going to be getting quite a bit more than that, though.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, if... Uh... You know, that version of Tanaka came out today. Um, he'd probably be looking at another, I think, also another $200 million contract at this point. He's another guy who uh, maybe not even, I have to go back and like check what, <clears throat> how hard exactly Tanaka was throwing at the time, but uh, another guy with a good fastball, uh, wipeout splitter too. So, uh, and had a ton of success in in Japan. So uh, I was a big yeah. fan of his when he came over. So, um, yeah, I, I, b- both guys. So I thought, all uh, right, think in this case with, uh, Yamamoto can be front of the rotation type arms.
0: Yeah. So I, I probably will still take the under on this one. Um, there's a posting fee that's going to come with this as well. I don't know how much that's going to factor into teams decisions to sign him or not, especially since you have some, at least, reasonably close um talents on the market but again the age is such a differentiator here with him so i I went over under on bellinger for 264 i'll go under again on Yamamoto for 225 um you can go under over if you want on these ben or we can just move on to our next name which is blake snell um
1: blake snell what do they have for
0: blake snell they have blake blake snell seven years 200 million um so, yeah, again, this would put him in kind of the elite free agent pitching contracts ever. I would much rather take Yamamoto. I probably would rather have Aaron Nola, who they have next at six years, 150000000 million. I'm kind of curious about the $50 million gap and an extra year of service for Snell versus Nola. I mean, maybe I'm just more concerned about a guy like Snell aging. And obviously Snell is coming off a probably Cy Young season here. Um, but do you view the gap between them that strongly
1: between Snell and Yamamoto, and or Nola. Snell and Snell, and, and, Aaron Snell Nola. and Aaron
0: Nola? I think yeah, I think we're both pretty comfortably uh, Yamamoto at, at the very top of our pitcher list this offseason.
1: Um, uh, I think you could make the case for Nola ahead of him. Yeah, I mean, I, I like <clears throat> I like both of them. Maybe not. Both of them at those prices. Um, <laughs> Snell, uh, the control is still like it, he had a great year. That obviously was the big, <laughs> or or would be one of the big red flags going forward with him. Um, and you you know you rattled off all of those big ticket uh, free agent pitching signings and pretty much what garrett cole has looked great and the rest yep (sighs) not as much and i and i would say most of those guys if not all of them were more more accomplished and better at the same time they hit free agency than blake Mm -hmm. snell so uh 200 million dollars is that what they have yeah Yeah, the
0: projection for blake snell is seven years 200 exactly and I think you're right. Like the platform year for Snell being so good.
1: Well he timed it really, well, yes. <laughs>
0: he did time it really well. That's obviously gonna help him, but yeah, I don't I don't trust the walk rate, like that's just not a walk rate that you typically see from an ace type pitcher. Like how how that profile ages for him, the fact that he doesn't go as deep into games as like a Garrett Cole or a Justin Verlander type at the time, like I would just be very scared of this one and I would probably not be handing out like the biggest offer he's receiving. So I wouldn't be getting him. Um, so it probably wouldn't be an issue, but I don't know. I, am just more, I would feel more comfortable giving a guy like Aaron Nola, a long-term contract than Snell, uh, for the prices that you're, you're going to be getting. Apparently.
1: I guess if, if that is in fact the price,
0: um, yeah, obviously these are just uh-huh. their projections. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you want to keep working down this list, or do you have any other thoughts on free agency? Their their next five are Jordan Montgomery, Matt Chapman, Josh Hader, Sony Gray, and then Shoto Imanaga, who is the number two pitching prospect coming out of Japan this year, um, ranging from 150 uh, for Montgomery, Chapman, Josh Hader. They have getting 110 over six years. Sony Gray, 90 million over four years. Imanaga, 85 over five. So some interesting names there to talk through, but I don't know how in depth you really wanted to get into free agency on this podcast.
1: Is there one that jumps out to you from that group? Cause there is one for me.
0: I like Sony gray quite a bit um, of that group. I, I think he could be a pretty good value just given some of the money that we're talking about for pitchers, but um, no, I, I'm curious who jumped out for you in that group though
1: uh jumped out maybe not in a good way but Matt Chapman um yeah <laughs> so 6 years 150 million dollars i i think Matt Chapman is a very good player and has been a very good player my concern would be how does that player age um mm-hmm. he's going to be 31 years old next season he oh. he he is a Fantastic defender at third base. Um, And his overall, you know, overall offensively was a 108 OPS plus Mm -hmm. uh, this past season with the Blue Jays. But uh, because there's, you know, some power, draw walks, he will also strike out a lot. And the strikeouts, like just the way his swing, works does not give him a lot of margin for error um it's not like um like i think of the way like carlos beltran age where like his yeah he does he did a lot of things obviously with like his speed his power his approach uh you know playing in the middle of the field when at least when he was younger uh but even as he lost bat speed he had the type of swing where his his barrel would stay in the hitting zone for such a long time Uh, He he gives himself more margin for error when the physical ability starts to go backwards, when the bat speed isn't as fast as it used to be. Uh, So what's going to happen for Matt Chapman when that happens to him? And probably the defense takes a step back. I mean, maybe he still ends up being a a pretty good defender into his mid-30s but especially offensively where, and there's already a lot of strikeouts there. Your your 30s hit you pretty hard sometimes. Um, And I I just would, I'd be really worried that he could hit a wall by the time it's 2025 even, and you're on the hook for a six year, $150 million contract. Like that would, That would be the one that really frightens me. But um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like you said, there's not a lot of premium, uh, or not not premium position, but uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of premium top bats. of the yeah premium yeah bats Hitters.
0: in their free agent it, class. So. I don't also know that I, I think all of your points are well taken there, but I, I also don't know that the recent history of some of these uh, third basemen entering their 30s signing big contracts will will give you much excitement. I mean, if he did sign for six years, 150 million, that would be the fourth largest, uh, free agent signing for a third baseman. Currently the top is Manny Machado who signed for 300 million, 10 years, obviously at age 26. That one looks pretty good right now. Machado is still an incredibly productive player, but right behind him, you have Anthony Rendon who signed a seven year, 245 million contract entering his age 30 season. Um, Basically right when he Should was getting into his no. uh no, I don't I don't think <laughs> no. that was gonna look very good. Yeah. No. <laughs> then right after that you have Chris Bryant, which is a little closer to what they're projecting for Matt Chapman. Again, entering his age thirty season, seven years, 182 million. I mean, both these guys, huge offensive questions after they got to their thirties, essentially. Um Chapman is about to enter his age thirty one season. Uh Chris Bryant went from one twenty eight OPS plus in his age 30 season in 2022. This year he hit 233, 313, 367. It was a 76 OPS plus. Obviously Anthony Rendon has not been anywhere close to the hitter that he was with the nationals in, in like the late 2010s. Um, so if you're looking for recent third base free agent track record, um, it's probably not gonna get you too excited to to be the high man on, on Chapman this off season. But I mean, as we're talking through these hitters, Chapman and Cody Bellinger are the top two hitters on this list here, unless you're counting Otani, which I guess he will be only a hitter his first year. But Otani seems unique enough to separate him out from this conversation. If you really need a bat to move the needle on your team this offseason, I don't envy you because there, there don't seem to be great options uh, for the prices you're going to be getting these players at.
1: I think you should. I think you should draft well. I think you should sign good international free agents. I think. Uh, yeah. Robin I mean, who K. would you rather? Ten
0: thousand dollars is pretty good in a sub one hundred million dollar contract. Man, that one looks better and better. <laughs> Matt Chapman for one fifty, given Acuna's contract, is just crazy.
1: Well, would you rather? Ha- who would you rather have for the next six years? Matt Chapman or Junior Caminero?
0: Matt Chapman. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. I don't know. guess <laughs> yeah. like
1: there's a case that like Caminero could no, end up nothing and.
0: No, Camonero. okay.
1: Yeah, no, I would too. And yeah. you're signing him for well, the race, I guess, traded for him. Uh, Guardians fans probably don't need a reminder <laughs> of that one. But uh, which, you know, how far him. down
0: do you think are our top 100 list of hitters you would go before you pick Chapman over the hitter?
1: <sighs> might you be can a, run through
0: it. <laughs> I'm assuming I'm assuming all the top 10 you're taking. So this includes obviously Holiday Chorio. Cruz, Camonero, Ethan Salas, James Wood, Wyatt Langford, Jordan Lawler, Evan Carter. Would you take Matt Chapman over any of those guys?
1: No, but I, and I, that's a tough thing is I, I like Chapman. I think he's probably been even maybe a little bit underrated throughout his yeah. 20s. Well, just I just don't think in, it's, he so
0: didn't help that perception.
1: <laughs> it's not a, I just don't see it as an, I don't see the offensive game yeah. aging well. Once Once, once we get into these post
0: top ten, I'd be curious. Okay, Colton Kowser. Would you take Chapman over Colton Kowser for what is it? Next six years?
1: Next six years. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I'd probably take Kowser. Yeah.
0: Okay. Pete Crow Armstrong.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, I'd take PCA.
0: Okay, Jackson Merrill.
1: We're we're talking about their next six. Big League next season. Next six years. Because so, so, like some of these guys, like, I no, don't think no, no, Ethan, no. Next, next Ethan Salas is next six years. Won't be no,
0: here. I think next six years, right? It, just to be consistent, it feels like next six years is easier. So, like, the fact that Ethan Salas needs more time would have to factor into it for you. You can't just, you can't just bank his six Big League seasons, I don't think.
1: But you have, but you have control of his next six Big League seasons.
0: I guess, but in terms of, like, competitive windows and what you need, what you might need to put on the Big League field now, like, those those six years are, are well down the line so if you're just looking at like next six years of value
1: yeah but he could be in the minor leagues for the next three years yeah but that you know, doesn't help he your big league team win but all right well we're just going to go in circles here
0: <laughs> you can take us for six big league seasons if you want ben i don't care that much all right okay i, mean, I might um, take
1: do you take all these guys in our top 20
0: Okay, so that I'll just scan through them so listeners know. So that's Jackson Merrill, Colson Montgomery, Marcella Mayer, uh, Walker Jenkins, Colt Keith, Roman Anthony, Max Clark. Uh, I think I would take all those guys too. Okay, let's let's move down to the next five. I'll just I'll just give you a cluster of names, and if you reach a name where you would rather have Chapman, just stop me. Uh, but the next hitters would be Adele Amador, Carson Williams, Kobe Mayo, Brooks Lee. That's twenty one through twenty five.
1: Carson Williams had some more questions on to Kobe Mayo is an interesting one just because the position yep. is the same. Yeah. So you're maybe more Brooks direct
0: they might wind up being third base too. So, yeah. So those two, I think I could be intrigued, but I still want to take the upside on them. So I would take them all. And then like, let's get through 30. So 27 Mason, Wynn, 28, Tyler Soderstrom, 29, Jefferson Caro. I think this is the range where I'd probably take Chapman. I think I might take Chapman over all those for the next six years. And I love Tyler Soderstrom.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's certain guys I probably would still take over him, but it, it starts to get closer here where you're going to get some, I don't want to say guaranteed value, I, but I, I still think Chapman will be a productive player next year at yeah. least. <laughs> But it's not. It's not like always the young prospects are going to be <clears throat> better than the, like I think Blake Snell. As much as you know, I'm I'd be scared to give him two hundred million dollars. Like I, I would take him over almost all of these uh, pitching prospects that we have stacked up mm-hmm. toward the top.
0: Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I agree. Okay. Any other any other free agent thoughts at this point? I don't really have too many more. We can move on to some uh, recruiting day stuff if you want. Yeah, National signing, signing Day, day.
1: for. Uh...
0: Yeah, the 24 class Please, National Sign Day was this this Wednesday. It was this week. Um, Teddy Cahill had a top 25 recruiting rankings for the 24 class. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, LSU tops that list. Uh, they've got our top two high school players uh, in the class right now, in Connor Griffin and Derek Curiel. Um, I think I, I was kind of hoping that there would be some unexpected teams in the top 10, just because it's always fun um, when some of these teams get there. I, I was wondering like, oh, would Wake Forest rank pretty high? Wake, Wake Forest is on this list. I'm very curious where Wake Forest will rank a year from now, two years from now. Um, just given the the talent they've gotten in the transfer portal, given what they did in the college world series last year, they're becoming a really dominant program. And if they can, start recruiting with the powerhouse sec teams which is always a high bar obviously um that could be really fascinating just given all the other in-state competition they they still have to to recruit against um but did you have any strong thoughts on signing day these recruiting classes it's obviously tricky to like a lot of these guys are going to be drafted It, it feels like lsu would be extremely fortunate for connor griffin to ever get to campus, just given his tool set, his athleticism, his, his hitting track record. Um, and so we, we always have to revisit these recruiting rankings post-draft just to to see who's actually getting to campus. But I think this does sort of give you a nice indication of who's recruiting well um, and, and who's getting these elite prospects because I mean, Dylan Cruz did happen. It, it, it took COVID, it took a national pandemic to make it happen, but there are some of these guys who, whether they get injured, whether they just have a high price tag, like, not everyone is Stanford obviously, but a lot of these programs you can you can get your prospects to have a pretty high price tag and you don't always get paid out. Like these these high school players have to compete with each other in the draft class to get the money they want. Um, but did you have any thoughts on National Signing Day or the rankings or any players um, that you wanted to mention?
1: Yeah, I mean like Rock Chalowski got to UCLA this year, yep. Cam Johnson, left handed pitcher, got to LSU this year. So it, it does happen. Uh, I mean, on Lake forest, I would say if just like two years ahead, the pitching in particular that they have in that class is, is really exciting with Josh Hammond, uh, Marcello harsh, um, uh, Ryan Bosch is a six foot eight lefty out of Michigan who's pretty talented. They have uh one, two, three, four, five players, uh, in our top. I think it's one, two, three. Yeah. Five. I think it's five players in our top 100 for 2025. So um, especially on the pitching side. And again, obviously wait and see how much, how many of these guys actually get to campus, but um,
0: yeah, it's, yeah, it's the, not surprising to hear. They have a lot of really talented pitching prospects committed because they do have a reputation as being a bit of a pitching factory. They obviously have uh, that really impressive pitching lab at the program. They've produced a lot of first-round arms in recent years. Jared Schuster in 2020, Ryan Cusick in 2021, most recently Rhett Lauder in 2023. Um, they have maybe the best starting rotation on paper entering the college season for next year between Chase Burns, Josh Hartle, um, oh, I'm blanking Michael Massey. Uh, so they have a ton of pitching talent they've got a good reputation for developing arms it's funny to think of wake forest as this pitching factory given that the park they play in is massively hitter friendly Um, (laughs) but they do have that reputation they keep pumping out first round pitchers it makes a lot of sense to me that that young high school pitching prospects would want to go to that program
1: yeah but like you said lsu number one it's such a it's a both premium players and mm-hmm. depth of players, too. So, yeah, yeah. they're probably going to lose Connor Griffin. Uh, they're probably going to lose, you know, left handed pitcher Cam Caminiti. Uh, yeah. Derek Curiel, the outfielder, probably not going to get him. Uh, mm-hmm. I would expect Kate Aaron Beatty, who's the number one catcher in the country, probably doesn't get there. Uh, even some of their, you know, their top arms, William Schmidt, Casson Evans. Again, like Cam Johnson made it to school this year. So some of those guys may end up surprising. The
0: the pitching one is always maybe the most interesting because a lot of teams just don't want to get into the high school pitching demographic at all. They'd just rather draft college arms. And so Mm -hmm. you have fewer realistic options and you also have what I think is a pretty deep and muddled high school pitching group in this 24 class like I don't know that there's massive separation between our all of the arms we really have in like the top 70 range there there's not a clear separation now maybe that'll change next spring but when you get to a let's say you're competing with a third of the teams in baseball who are going to hand out a million or more dollars to high school pitchers in the draft it's just such a small pool of teams that you have to play with and if you view yourself as a talent that deserves this money, like not everyone is going to get the money. I think that's part of the reason that cam got to campus in the first place. Like teams just handed out their overslot bonuses to other high school pitchers. And there just aren't enough big league teams that are handing out that money to high school pitchers that it can be hard for everyone to get what they think they deserve. And so you wind up with pitchers getting on campus. Um, So I think it will be really interesting to see which are the top arms who do make it and who just slide out. Um, cause that, that maybe is the one demographic where just the landing spots aren't there. Whereas I think every team will be in on the hitters. Like there, there's less hesitancy to dabble in high school hitting than high school pitching. I think from, from an industry perspective.
1: Yeah. And they just, you know, they recently added, uh, what Maverick Rizzi from Massachusetts six, eight, six, nine, right-handed pitcher, Boston Bateman, a six, eight left-handed, pitcher two-way guy too um so they, they have a lot of pitching in this class matthew champion stunner gonzalez uh and then even more bats too with you know a couple of third baseman danny arambula from california Cale fountain uh another gigantic human being with gigantic power in his case so uh david hogg at, at shortstop there's uh a ton like, of e- 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 yeah. Even if you just like lopped off immediately, like Griffin, Camadity, Curiel, Aaron Beatty, like still like a pretty talented group beyond, uh, uh-huh. beyond those players who they'll, I would think more than likely end up uh, signing with an MLB club.
0: Yeah. And I feel like you almost have to, like, it feels like it'd be a real headache to have a class like this, where you have a lot of premium high school talent. So you just kind of expect to be gone, but you don't, can't bank on that obviously you don't know until you know uh so i don't envy the the college recruiters who have to kind of maintain their class and also balancing recruiting well with with being one of the premier programs in terms of transfers as well it's just a lot of players you have to to manage and juggle it seems tough um number two poor man, LSU. Tennessee. Yeah. yeah poor lsu poor lsu it's a they tough... just
1: picked up dean moss too for number four player for 2025 outfielder Really good eye, bat speed, power, left-handed bat. Um, so, <laughs> not, not slowing down.
0: Next, you're going to tell me they have Quentin Young. Oh, wait, they do. Oh, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah, they just got him too, so. so.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're clearly in a dominating position in college recruiting at this stage, um, given what they've done last year. I mean, it's not like LSU was, was not always a, a powerhouse in the space, but it does feel like vanderbilt florida for a few years was was getting kind of the the top classes fairly consistently but lsu seems to be in the driver's seat at this point anything Um, else jump out to you i
1: was gonna say some of the guys in lsu's class were previously committed to vanderbilt or florida so um definitely a uh, (laughs) a destination for for players right now
0: yeah absolutely we got tennessee number two texas number three um tennessee's top top recruit is T coons right-handed pitcher texas top recruit is bryce Raynor. shortstop and right-handed pitcher um number four we've got tcu um their top recruit is noah franco and then virginia caleb Bonimer, who is probably going to be one of the bigger risers on our our overall draft list when we update it any players in those classes jump out to you or, or classes overall
1: the Tennessee class sticks out to me. Uh mm-hmm. I love Tegan Coons. I think he's one of the best pitchers in the country. Again, like does he make it to campus? Uh maybe, but he'll be pretty pretty highly prioritized by uh mm-hmm. you know teams in the draft too. But uh they have a pretty good depth of players too. They have a whole bunch of players who are uh in our current yes. top one hundred high school players but there's also a lot of guys who I, I could pretty easily see making it to campus they too have um,
0: a, they have a ton of really good shortstops in this class they have ty sooth scene they have trey snyder they have manuel marin or manny marin a lot of really good defenders like some of these guys are going to get popped out imagine but they've got to feel good about having a a plug and play defensive shortstop. I mean, I don't know if you think Ty Sutherstein is more of a second baseman at the next level, probably so, but I think Trey Snyder and Manny Marin were two of the more impressive defenders at the position for me. And the fact that they have both in this class is, is pretty cool. I hope I hope one of the, I hope both of them do not get to campus. Cause I would hate to be in a position where one of them is not playing shortstop at some level.
1: Oh, yeah, you Marin and South at shortstop and second base, it's gonna be the prettiest double play mm-hmm. combination as uh yes. as you can get, at least for a, a freshman duo. Yeah, I mean for and me, then... Trey
0: Snyder was the best defender at the area code games. I'm not sure if, what your history of him is as a defender, but he made every single play. Really good on... athlete, yeah. Yeah, he was tremendous.
1: Yeah, him and then you mentioned Tegan Coons, Anson Siebert, six foot eight right handed pitcher from Kansas power uh-huh. arm. Yeah. Braden Krenzel, uh Tate Strickland, that Aiden Hayes, some some really good pitching in that group. Yep. Uh, Jay Abernathy, another shortstop. It's like, geez, like <laughs> obviously not places to play all these guys, but uh, oh, I didn't even mention Levi Clark. I was gonna what, bring like, him up. I thought you were just outstanding, at pitchers, summer. but yeah.
0: I didn't get to see him as much in person as some of these other players, but just watching video of him his swing I'm kind of obsessed with his swing at this point it's so powerful uh his production has been impressive I I just love the operation offensively what do you think about him defensively
1: I liked what I saw from him Mm -hmm. defensively I think it could be I mean we talked about the difficulty uh for high school pitchers trying to get signed out of the draft I would say it's probably true too of high school catchers so yeah um, looking at the track
0: record of first round high school catchers too it's not a surprise why like it's well they're great.
1: just there just aren't that many high high school catchers who sign mm. out of the draft um so i i think like yeah he he would be somebody if i was an mlb club like i, I would love to get him yep. in the draft but um i like i don't know like I, I, I could see him getting to campus too so Again, like LSU, even if they lose some of these guys to the draft, which I'm sure they will, they will. They will. there's there's a good depth here um, yeah. to to be pretty excited about. Okay. Was, was well, as say, was another class that jumps for you or?
0: Well, I wanted to mention Texas as well. Just their number three. I mean, looking through their list, they've got some tools. I like Bryce Rainer a ton. Um, on the mound, really. I've, I've talked about this a lot. Levi Sterling, I feel like, is one of the better pitchers in this class. Samuel Richardson has a ton of power. Theo Gillen, I, I hear a lot of scouts talk about Theo Gillen, like like he's one of the better hitters in the class. Like There are a lot of people that are really all in on his bat. So I think that's a really strong top four. Um, there are some players further down who are interesting, but that, that group is pretty strong up top. I'm curious what you think about the depth there, because um, if they have a couple of those guys get picked off, that maybe would be a bit unfortunate, but I, I like the top of their class quite a bit.
1: I, I like that top, uh you know, especially like Sterling, Rainer, Gillen. Yeah. I also think those are three players who are very high risk of not getting to yeah. campus, which I think would really like uh, really damage the class potentially. So uh, that that is one where I'd be.
0: Yeah. It's but like you're, you're for Texas as like a big faller. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Bad. Like you gotta be excited that you're, you know, recruiting these premium players and in and, and particular, like Levi Sterling was a guy who's like, I, I think his stock has really ticked up over the last uh, year or two years, like a pretty consistent up arrow guy. Um, I, I know like we were pretty high on him for a while uh, even though he wasn't like the hardest throwing guy in the class, but a lot of good projection indicators there with him. Um, but I, I think at this point, all three are, you got to be pretty nervous that you, they,
0: they might not get to Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's a good call. Uh, okay. Any, any other thoughts on, Signing day recruiting rankings. Uh, we got a few questions we can get to, but if you wanted to have a few more comments on on this, we can.
1: Well, I like the Mississippi class, the Ole Miss class. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of good, a lot of good hitters there. Uh, a lot of good position players. Obviously, like Owen Pano would be the main guy um, right now. Shortstop from New York, uh, big left-handed bat and pretty good defender at shortstop. Uh, especially for uh, a big guy, 6'3", 200, 205, uh, really good internal clock. Just a a whole bunch of players in this class have really good instincts for the game, uh, good bat to ball skills like Slate Caldwell, uh, left-handed outfielder, uh, speed, ton of contact, uh, top-of-the-order type guy, um, Hayden Federico, um, Good athlete, maybe not like the loudest tools, but switch hitter, a ton of contact, good, good instincts on the on the defensive end. Uh, they added Caden Lopez, uh, liked him on the on the mound, a, a decent amount. Him and uh, and then Kate Townsend, out a right-handed pitcher out of California, with one of the better. Uh, like he'll spend up to I think 2,900, 3,000 RPM with his breaking ball, really good. Uh, feel for spin on the, the breaking ball fastball up to uh, i think like 94 95 or so so
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, a lot of things to to like with uh with that old old miss group
0: yeah no it's a good group i, I like Ethan serwick as well a little bit i think he's mm-hmm. got some impact in the bad i saw him take some nice cuts uh this summer and fall so i think that's another one to add to um uh, Mississippi State leading their class with Dante Nori. I think he's got some Slade Caldwell traits in terms of being a center field guy, center field profile, plus plus runner, um, solid hitting ability. And I, I feel like Dante Nori, like given his age, um, it might be a guy that gets pushed to college just because so many models are going to be out on him because he's so old for the class. Um, but I feel like Dante Nori is the type of player who can immediately impact a college programs. So Mississippi State leading their class with him is kind of cool. I'm just scanning down the list, see if there are any other names or teams to mention. Um, I think
1: the um, one of them would just be Miami for me, just in terms of the, mm. the pitching in particular that they have. Um, yeah, they need well, some pitching. Yeah, Johnny King, David Shields, a couple lefties uh, with really good feel uh lazaro cholera big right-handed pitcher with a ton of power
0: he showed some Um, of the best just fastball slider combination that i saw this summer like if he's over the plate he has a really loud two pitch mix
1: yeah and then a couple like local guys too from uh or a few of them actually from the miami the miami area like they
0: always recruit there well
1: yeah fabio peralta center fielder glides around center field um,
0: That's one that I'm maybe a little scared of, but he definitely has tools and athleticism.
1: Yeah. I mean, like in a good way, like it, you know, there's certainly some hit risk there that could get him to campus and teams want to maybe want to see improve it uh, in college. I think if that happens, Miami's going to be thrilled. But yeah. Um, the, I think, the, you
0: know, it, I was going to
1: say the. Sorry, go, go ahead.
0: ahead. No, no, go ahead.
1: Let's say like the other. Uh, end of the spectrum is Ethan Puig, who's... I was going to make not, the exact not, point. He's like the yeah, exact
0: opposite, but still could get to campus because of
1: it. Yeah, not the raw athleticism or, or kind of gliding runner that Peralta is, but somebody who just consistently hits very direct right-handed swing, fastball, breaking ball, up, down, in, out, uh, hits everything. And then Michael Torres, too, a two-way player who, um, you know, outfielder, left-handed pitcher, uh, I think there's a pretty pretty good chance he ends up getting to campus and could end up being a really, really good player for, for Miami there too. So um, I, I guess I started with the pitching, but it's a pretty interesting group of bats too. So mm-hmm. uh, I like that that group they have.
0: Yeah. So I definitely encourage you guys to check out Teddy's full top 25 recruiting rankings on the site now if you want to get caught up to speed on on all of those, um, read up more on some of the players uh, that we have there. But we've got a few questions we want to get to as well on today's episode. Are uh, you ready to jump into those Ben? Yeah. So Bryce on Instagram, he asks, is the arm tool grade determined strictly in game or are showcase metrics included? And he falls follows up and says, is the speed tool number on the 20 to 80 scale determined more by the 60 yard dash, the 10 yard split or home to first times. So some, some nice scouting questions here. I'll throw them both to you first.
1: I would say both settings can be used to grade, uh, starting with arm strength. The, Difficulty of evaluating arm strength from game looks, especially for an outfielder, is you just might you might watch a guy play for a five-game series and you won't see him make a single competitive throw. Yes. Or he might get one throw and he doesn't necessarily get off his best throw to fully demonstrate his arm strength. So yep. in, in a showcase, you generally are going to have players who are actually just trying to show off their arm strength, so you're gonna get four or five throws to be able to yeah. judge arm
0: strength. You get a real sense of the power they have in the arm. You can see how the arm actually works, how it looks. Um, yeah, I think definitely the workout setting is much more useful for outfit arm strength, specifically for that reason.
1: Yeah, now in terms of showcase metrics for arm strength, you're, you're typically probably just talking about somebody having a radar gun. Uh, and putting it on the player when they're throwing in a showcase. I think that has utility for catchers and for outfielders. For for catchers, you're not really able to cheat a lot, at least in terms of just the raw velocity that you can get behind the ball. You can definitely cheat on the pop time with how high you're setting up, uh, how close to the plate you're catching the ball, uh, whether you're wearing full gear or not, but, uh, you're not crow hopping to second base, right? So, uh, the, the raw arm strength measurement that you're getting there, it's, it's not the same as a game throw, but, uh, it, it's general at least an apples to apples, uh, measurement from one player, uh, to the next in terms of this catcher through 86 miles an hour, or this catcher through, uh, 78, um, I think for for outfielders and for infielders, it's different. The radar gun is a useful tool for being able to quantify throwing velocity for a position player. The problem becomes when players, when they see and know that there's a radar gun on them, it changes the way that they throw so what you're trying to measure gets skewed it's kind of like the saying what what gets measured gets managed so when you have a metric people will try to optimize for that specific metric often at the expense of other things Mm -hmm. that actually matter uh so it leads to these unintended consequences um and, and the consequence of putting a, a radar gun on a player at a showcase, especially when, the, when, when you're at a showcase that posts every player's um, outfield velo or infield velo uh, online is the players are going to cheat with their throwing mechanics. So you see outfielders taking all kinds of like huge crow hops and extra steps on their throws, just feeling the ball in a way that is totally um, inefficient for what they would do in a game setting but does maximize the number that they're going to have on the radar gun yeah uh, and, and, and for infielders especially that's where it can get really yes <laughs> ridiculous like that's where I, I really don't like radar guns uh at showcases for infielders because i with with infielders i really just want to see Uh, scouts really just want to see the way that you move the way you move your feet the way actions footwork yeah your hands mechanics the way your arm works like how you're turning double plays like and then see arm strength organically on uh, plays where you're required to use your they they want to see your arm when
0: you're throwing from the hole essentially like they want to see how the ball carries they don't want to see what sort of radar gun reading can you put up when you get a ball hit in front of you or slightly to your glove side where you can take three crow hop steps essentially to first base. They, they want to see how the arm's carrying when you don't get a lot of time to set your feet up and throw from the hole. Like, cause if you can't make that throw, then we got some questions. Um, but yeah, just in general, how, how does the ball come out of your hand on a normal game looking actions?
1: Yeah. Nobody wants to see a bunch of kids, doing a pull down on a throw to first base just to yeah. juice their radar gun reading as high <laughs> as they can with a whole bunch of extra shuffle steps or even crow hops sometimes.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, and then the speed tool, how is that determined more by the six yard dash, 10 yard split or home to first? Well, for me, home to first and for Ben, 60 yard dash. <laughs> but yeah. A, yeah. We touched,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, we touched on it in the kind of the last yeah we had
0: a full podcast on that if you you didn't hear that one like we we really went in depth on like how we evaluate speed and the various um use cases for different workout environments and like what's playable speed what's maybe less playable speed like the value of home to first like we really went in depth on that so if if that one doesn't answer for you like i don't know we probably failed you in that podcast if that's true but i would say in general like all of them are useful and they all are built into it it's not like one versus the other
1: yeah and I guess like the only other thing on arm strength, would would just say like all of what we were talking about too, is talking about present arm strength. So when we're, mm. when we're talking about a high school prospect or an international prospect who's 15, 16, 17, you know, maybe 18 years old, there, there are times where you can still project a player's arm to yep. get stronger. It's, it's less likely you would do that with a college player or a minor league prospect. Um, but, the you know, the same way if we're watching a 17-year-old pitcher who's 88-92, but you look at their arm speed, uh, you look at how much space they have to still fill out. Arm and action. Weight. Yeah, exactly. You know, you think this is a guy who should be throwing in the mid-90s, maybe upper 90s in the future. Uh, you can do that with a position player, too. So you see a shortstop who's, who's that age, has an average arm, uh, but is... 6'3", 175 pounds, long limbs, a lot of space to fill out, uh, arm arm is pretty quick. You can project him to uh, sometimes have a, a plus arm once he fills out and, and packs on more weight. Yep.
0: Uh, we got another fun scatty question from Brandon on Instagram. He asks, when a player is projectable, what age is that projecting them to? So I've actually, I don't think we've ever had this question, but I think it's useful to talk about. How would you handle this one, Ben?
1: So at, at Baseball America, at least when when we're writing about projecting players, we we're projecting what they will be in the major leagues, not what they're going to be in college, but what we project them to be on the on the major league scale. Yeah. So
0: and and anytime you see grades for us, tool grades, uh, outside of like if we're specifically saying he has present X it's almost always like a future major league projection for those tools.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, if we say like a guy's a plus runner.
0: Yes. He, he yeah. is and in terms runner. of like, if you've seen our yeah. scouting reports, when we put like grades, like quantified grades, like those are all future projection grades.
1: Yeah. I think where there might be confusion is in the way that people use, or in some cases misuse uh, the word projectable in context. it It really should be, I think attached to something specific to have meaning and clear meaning. Mm -hmm. So I would say a player is physically projectable or has significant strength projection remaining because he's a, you know, say a pitcher who's six, four 190 pounds, long arms room to put on another 30 pounds. Uh, And when he gets uh, you know, when that physical projection materializes and he's now six, four to 20, with a lot more strength he's probably going to be throwing harder whereas yep. the same pitcher who's you know 18 years old
0: maxed out physically yeah
1: 511 210 looks like a middle linebacker already <laughs> yeah exactly I, I would say he lacks physical projection what you see is probably what you get in terms of uh velocity um and, and you can make a similar reference to a player having you know projectable power to mm-hmm. right, which means a hitter he doesn't necessarily have to have huge power right now, but you see traits there that lead you to believe that more power is going to come. So he might have you know, like the same physical characteristics of the, the pitcher we just talked about, where there's mm-hmm. a lot more room for the hitter to add good weight and strength to his frame, uh, and especially if the hitter already has um, you know very good bat speed even if he's hitting the ball with what might be 40 raw power right now on, on that twenty eighty major league scouting skill, you can project him to have uh, 50 or, or maybe 60 raw power uh, by the time he's at his uh, physical peak. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Useful. I don't, I don't have too much more to add to that, Ben. I think that's a, a useful question to ask. So thank you, Brandon. Yeah. Thank you, Bryce, both of you guys for sending those questions and hopefully, hopefully those helped clear up what you were trying to find out. Um,
1: I would say too, just the, like I think overall, like I just think it's better to be more precise. Like the more precise you can be with your language to reduce any yeah ambiguity in your message. Like I think I that's like where, that with
0: the player comps too. I think both with projection and with comparisons to players, like being as precise as possible to yeah. make sure it has like the you have the most like meaning to take away from it is very useful.
1: Yeah, I don't like it's not something that you know major league scouts. Do in terms of like misusing it, obviously. um I think it's just like important for us or anybody who's like writing publicly about the players to uh make sure they're not trying to like just add scouting scout, terms, scout yeah. speak, yeah, scouty sounding don't language, just throw and,
0: scout lingo just because,
1: <laughs> yeah, just to it's important to just communicate with clarity um what you mean. I guess the, the one other way or one other way it can be used is. Like you might hear the phrase, "He's a projection arm." Um, I, I feel like that tends to be scouting shorthand for, like, here, here's a pitcher who has some physical traits mm. that you like. He's seventeen years old. He's six three, hundred eighty pounds. Arm works well. Eighty seven, ninety one. Some good physical attributes to build on, but but maybe the raw stuff isn't that loud yet or there's some things with like the delivery or pitchability that need to be ironed out and developed um where there are things that you like but he's not that elite tier arm he fits more into that bucket of players where you sign a whole bunch of them and maybe one or two end up clicking yeah um like if you like if i'm thinking if you read through my international reviews right like which is where we write up 250 players every year who uh, uh are international signings every uh, you probably realize like a, a lot of the reports on the pitchers who sign for 10k to one hundred fifty thousand dollars <laughs> kind of all start to sound pretty similar in a lot of cases because there's just only so many ways to write up uh this 17 year old pitcher as a loose arm eighty <laughs> eight, ninety two, 92 lean wiry build uh inconsistent breaking ball spins off to the side like those are players who scouts would, they would just often refer to them as projection arms, uh, where a lot of them, you know, frankly, might not even make it out of the DSL, uh, or they might not make it much past the lower levels of the minor leagues, but then some of them uh, blow up, do end up hitting down that projection, and they turn into Freddie Peralta or or Yuri Perez.
0: Well said, Ben. Uh, I don't have too much to add to that. And I think we're running up on our time for today's episode. So we will get out of here. Um, anything to plug, I would, I would just urge people to check out the top 10s. Those are rolling out on the website. Again, we mentioned Teddy's top 25 recruiting rankings. Um, so there is a lot of stuff on the website recently. Um, so again, thank you to BA subscribers who support us and let us do what we do. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. And thank you guys for, for listening to the episode. Uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us. And, and Ben, I'll just throw it over to you. Any, anything you want to plug or mention before we get out of here?
1: Yeah, top tens every day on the site. So every day, uh, a new list. Well, we'll take Thanksgiving off, but
0: otherwise, <laughs>
1: otherwise, top tens every day.
0: Sweet. And with those, you can you can chat with the writer of the top 10. If you have questions about the system, if you're a fan, if you want to know about the players, if you want to know about the, the process and lining players up how we did, uh, definitely jump into those chats. I just did a Braves chat recently. That was a lot of fun. Uh, got to dig into the system. And what I love about our chats too is there, there are always some questions that that help me think through players um, in a way that maybe I didn't beforehand. So they're very thought-provoking for, for even us. So it's not just me handing out information. It really is a fun conversation to have with you guys and a nice way to interact with with BA readers and subscribers. So definitely jump into those. Um, But for Ben, I'm Carlos. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will see you next time.